It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle. We're the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom buying for New Yorkers. The city steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and in just a moment, you'll be hearing from Bronxite Jason Morales, a 39 year old legacy pot seller from Parkchester in the Bronx with the 70 page rap sheet covering about 20 arrests, all of them pot-related, over about as many years. He's one of the people hopeful to get a license and support from the state. Now the pot is legal and we've got an office of cannabis management, albeit one that's only given out three licenses so far in the city and just one to a justice-involved applicant and that for a pop-up operation. That's largely because the money, storefronts, and support that are supposed to be coming through a separate state agency, the Dormitory Authority, just hasn't arrived yet. And a judge has temporarily blocked any licenses from getting issued in Brooklyn and parts of upstate in response to a suit from a guy complaining but giving licenses to people with old marijuana arrests in New York as part of the state's unique setup This is meant to offer an implicit form of reparations to the communities that got hit hardest by the prohibition, violates the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. That ruling doesn't impact the Bronx, but the borough that had the most pot arrests during New York's long war on the stuff, so often used as a pretext for stopping, frisking, and arresting young black and brown men, is nonetheless waiting to get its first license operation. I connected with Jason is hoping to get one of those licenses and some support from the state to open what would be his first legal business through Dariela Rodriguez, a childhood friend of his who's the director of community development at The Point, a community development corporation, quote, dedicated to youth development and the cultural and economic revitalization of the Hunts Point section of the South Bronx, unquote, and is also working with Bronx, a group, quote, founded to ensure that the communities most impacted by the war on drugs are at the forefront of realizing equity and truly benefit from this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to shape New York's cannabis industry from the ground up, unquote. Dariella told me that Jason was a model of the sort of person who should be getting a license if the state's politicians eventually live up to the proclamations they've already made about creating a system here that pays back the communities that paid the highest price. She noted that Jason couldn't apply for the first round acquired licenses, despite his many pot arrests and otherwise clean record, because he hadn't had his own LLC for long enough, which was another requirement for applicants. Then she told me about making plans with Jason when they were teenagers, only to have to cancel them when the boys got arrested in a park for weed and then showing up at the court dates instead of going out. So Jason, Welcome to the pod. Let's talk pod. Um, I want to hear about how your application process is going, or is it, and about your long time and unlicensed, of course, delivery business and how that's doing now that you're up against all of these bootleg storefronts that, unlike the state's efforts, of course, no problem raising private capital and finding real estate. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, do you want to tell listeners about the first time you got arrested? Uh yeah, thank you, Harry. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, well, uh, it all started uh when I was about 16 years old. Like you said, I'm 39 years old. My first arrest, uh, I used to live in uh Fordham, which is a section in the Bronx, Fordham Road. Pretty sure people are familiar. Um, 
I used to live out there, and uh, not too far from there, there used to be a spot called Creston. They, they used to call it the Creston Weed Spot because it was on Creston Avenue, which was not too far from uh, the uh, area where I was at, which was Davidson and Fort. It's not too far from there. But uh, one day, uh, me and a friend of mine, we ended up, like I said, we ended up going to Creston and uh, getting some weed. And right after that, we ended up going into the park, which was right next door to it, which was St. James Park. Like I said, it was me and a friend named Angelo. We went in there, uh, ended up uh, sitting on a bench, ended up rolling up, smoking, which probably wasn't the smartest idea at the time. But, you know, we were young, dumb, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't, obviously, we didn't realize we were in any danger till after we rolled that blunt and smoked it. So, like I said, as uh, we were smoking, uh, a lady approached us and she let us know she was a cop. And she told us uh, we were wrong for sitting there and smoking. So, you know, as, as a kid, we, we, as, as, as a teenager, we're scared. We're looking at her like, you know, we're sorry. You know, we, can we just leave? Uh, she made it very clear to us that uh, we were going to be arrested. And she made it very clear to us that we were going to go through the system. When she said that, it was the most horrifying thing somebody can tell you. Being you've never been through the system, you don't know what you're going to go through. You know all this by watching shows, movies, but when it's brought to you in real life, it's a whole different ball game. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, I wasn't ready for it, me or my friend. We were 16 years old. Like, who's ready for, for, for anything like that? You know, uh, I felt like a criminal. I felt like uh, I did something very wrong. I, I felt like I uh, did something to hurt somebody. Like the the feeling of of being locked up, it's 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 really a criminal. You feel like a criminal, you know. She uh, ended up arresting us, uh, taking us to the precinct. We couldn't qualify. They didn't even let us qualify for uh, DAT. To those who are not familiar, that's a desk appearance ticket. Like I said, it was my first time getting locked up. Why in hell would not qualify for a DAT if I've never been through the system? I should have been in and out. I'm pretty sure if I had a lawyer and I had the money to have a lawyer, I would have been out in a minute. But unfortunately, I didn't have lawyer money, so I couldn't obtain a lawyer. So guess what? We had to go through the system. And I want to say this. Uh, I've been locked up about uh, maybe 28, 29, almost 30, almost 30 times for weed. And uh, out of all them times, that was the first time that I was there the longest. So not only was it uh, frustrating <laughs> to have to go through the system, but to be there three days, it's inhumane. They didn't let me make a call. Uh, my parents didn't know what was going on. My parents found out I was locked up because they were calling the bookings everywhere. And they finally got a hold of me hours later. I don't think it was right. Got arrested, sat there three days. You know, every time after that, I was locked up about two, two days, one day. There was times that uh, I was in there and uh, they would backdoor me, which... Uh, 
back in the day, that's what they would do. There was many people in there for a marijuana arrest. They, you wouldn't see a judge or nothing. They'll just let you go through the back door like nothing ever happened. Be on your way. Yeah, yeah. It's frustrating as hell. Frustrating as hell. And then knowing that you're just there as a as a person that they're just making money off of, it hurts even more. Like, I'm here for no reason. I'm really here for no reason, you know? You know, the area I'm in, I'm, I live in the Parkchester area, the Bronx, and, you know, there's many Puerto Ricans and Blacks over here. Not too many Caucasians. There's a few, but not too many. But, you know, the the majority of the people here are Spanish and Black. So I felt like we were always being profiled out here for no reason. The worst thing about it is, and it hurts to say this, my own people, which were Spanish, Puerto Rican cops, those were the worst cops to run into. Oh, Lord, those were the worst. Those were the worst. I'll tell you this. The most pleasant time I've had an arrest, you know, not to sound racist, was with a Caucasian cop. Those are the ones that treated me the best. There was actually a time that I, I, I'd like to bring up. Uh, it was probably one of the worst times of my life. One one day, this was uh, 2007, it was on a weekday, uh, me and a friend of mine, close friend of mine, uh, we were waiting to go get a haircut. We drove to the barbershop. We were there for a minute. There was a few people ahead of us, so we was in front of the barbershop. Uh, my friend and I had a couple of bags on us of weed. Nothing serious, nothing major. We ended up driving to the store around the corner from the uh, from the store. Uh, I ended up getting out the car to get a ginger ale. Went to go get a ginger ale. Something less than five minutes. I get back in the car with my friend. We circle back around. We double park in front of the uh, barbershop as we're waiting to get uh, our cuts. So maybe five minutes into just being there... Uh, the cops just came out of nowhere, uh, unmarked vehicle, like two unmarked vehicles just came out of nowhere, pulled us out the car, started searching us, started searching the car. They found weed on me. They found weed on my friend. My friend had a little bit more weed than me, but, you know, it was basically all weed. They were asking us who's weed because there was weed in the car also. We was like, listen, we got, you know, you got us for whatever it is that you come in here for. You got our weed, like, you know, just take us. If that's what you're going to do, because at, at that point already, I was already so used to being locked up that it was normal for a cop to come up to me. Like I was no longer scared no more because it became normal. It was just something like, all right, you know, this is what, that, what I have to endure as I walk the streets. Like it's something that just has to happen is normal. You know, being I remember being locked up in a van one time and seeing everybody on my block in the van. <laughs> and half of them were for weed. You know, it's insane. But like I was saying, uh, we was in front of the uh, barbershop. They pulled us out. They took us in for the weed, you know. So I'm in the bookings. The uh, second day, I get to see my legal aid attorney. And uh, he tells me my charges. Meanwhile, you know, the whole time I'm in the bookings, I'm like, yeah, this is weed. I'm used to this. I'm out of here. When I get to my uh, attorney, that wasn't the case. The case was uh, I was being charged for making a, a, a cocaine sale and uh, selling marijuana at the same time. A cocaine and marijuana sale, basically. I never did anything. You know, the weed that we had was ours to smoke. 
I went to see the judge that day and they remanded me to the boat, which is a jail, which I, I don't I don't know if it's still there, but uh, it's a jail in Hunts Point. It was on literally a boat. It's not a fun place. Uh, they had a, a dorm. They had two places, a dorm and, you know, where you hang out at. It was just two. There was no movement. It was just two places to go in the boat. Uh, that day I was told I was there for a sale. And uh, they they made up a name of the person that I sold to. Person was made up. I knew it was made up from the beginning, but, you know, I had to fight it in court. Uh, so I ended up going to the boat. For those who don't know, going to the boat the first day, it's a very long process. The fact that I was already there two days and then finally getting to the boat, it's not like you just get there and they just put you in your bed. Oh, no, it doesn't go like that. As soon as you get to the boat, you're on a line for like two hours. They put you through this thing where you have to get naked, where they have to search you to make sure you don't have anything on you. Then put you in a cell. I was in a cell for maybe another three hours. Then after that, you have to see the doctor. That's another uh, two, three hours that you have to wait to see. They put you in another cell to see the doctor. They put me in like three different cells before I even seen a doctor. I told them I had asthma. Uh, they said they would get me an asthma pump. That was never given to me. I got acid reflux real bad. And uh, while I was there, it was real bad. And they didn't give me no medicine for it. They said they would have the medicine for me. They never had it. But you know what? I, To be honest, I was in there already. I couldn't do nothing. So it was just, I had to roll with the punches. Uh, like I said, finally, after I seen the doctor, I got checked out. I finally get put in the bed, maybe like 12 o'clock at night. Mind you, I get to the boat early in the day, like before 12. I'm already there numerous hours before they give me a bed. Then when they finally give me a bed, I'm sleeping around 15, 20, 30 people, something I'm not used to. You know, some I've, I've never, you know, I've always, I've always had my room. It's weird. Having to sleep around 30 people, you don't know where anything could just happen. You know, I woke up I, 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 that night. I just couldn't sleep. Finally, I finally did fall asleep, but I woke up. It was just horrible. I was there for five days. Each day I was there, I was just crying myself to sleep, you know, and I'm not an emotional person. I'm not saying emotional is a bad thing, but I'm not an emotional person for me to cry myself to sleep every night, I felt defeated. I felt like I'm a criminal. I felt like I almost felt whatever they were putting on me, it was true. Cause I it just I couldn't believe I was there. I just couldn't believe I was there for something I didn't do. Uh my parents didn't know what was going on. My parents were out of town at the time. And when they finally got to New York, uh they found out what was going on. I couldn't get a call, nothing. I got I was able to call once I got to the boat. The cell I was in in the bookings wasn't even working, so I couldn't even make a call. So when I visited with you at your apartment that you're in, right, and that your mother's in, and uh, your brother, Eddie, um, your father's passed on, but you were telling me about, about your father. You're a Catholic school kid. You were telling me that, that he had right. some issues with addiction many years earlier in his life. He was in N.A. Right. for a very long time. He helped out a lot of other people who were there 
and that you were never around this stuff. But now you've been arrested and you're told that there's a, a coke charge. What ends up happening with all that? Uh, so, like I said, I was there uh, five days. And uh, finally, my parents got a hold of where I was at. I was able to call once I got to the boat. Three days later, uh, I was bailed out. It was a $500 bail. Uh, my parents at the time didn't really have it, but they were able to scrap it together and uh, they got me out. Uh, I fought that for about a year and come to find out uh, the person was made up. Everything was dropped. And I could have I could have definitely. Uh, the reason I didn't I didn't pursue a civil lawsuit was because I was so tired of going to court. I just ended up taking a super misdemeanor charge. I went from a fel all these felony charges to a simple misdemeanor. You know, but I was just so tired and distraught from like, you know, going to court for a whole fucking year. Excuse my language for a whole year, you know, for bullshit that I know I didn't do, you know. So uh, to be honest, I was just happy to just take the misdemeanor and that's it. You know, the older part of me would have fought that to the very end and not take no misdemeanors. But unfortunately, you know, back in the day, it is just it just is what it is. And I just took it for what it was. So so I got to ask you a couple things here. Like, first off, I hope you'll talk a bit about when it finally hit you that all this was not normal, was not right. And also what happened after that first arrest? Yeah, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Harry. I it took me years and years and years to really uh, know that that wasn't normal. I was living life for from 16 up to like 30 thinking that was normal. Just getting pulled over for no reason, you know, uh, getting searched for no reason. Uh, you know, that was part of the norm. Everybody out here, like, it was the same thing. Like, we were all getting pulled over. If you were Hispanic or black, you were getting pulled over. Whether you were walking or driving, you were getting pulled over. And they were going to get whatever they needed. And if they didn't, they would just still put you in for something. They will always find some a reason to like just put you in. I'm hoping you can talk a little about your love of weed. And at what point you also started selling some weed. Okay, so uh, the selling of the weed. I probably started getting into the selling of the weed when I was about 21. You know, I was... To be honest, I've always had little jobs, but I would always sell weed just to have an extra bit of money, you know, just just to buy extra stuff. And I was never into, you know, being a big drug dealer. I was never into being like a big uh, uh, whatever you see on TV. That's not what I was trying to be. To be honest, it was just to have extra money and do the extra things I needed to do that I couldn't do with my regular pay, you know, living in the Bronx, not having a great job. You're not be, you're not able to do everything you kind of want to do, which is the little stuff. It's nothing out of this world, like not even vacations, none of that. Just extra money just to do stuff as a kid. You know, as I got older, my clientele started getting uh, thicker, started getting bigger. And, you know, little by little, as, as the years went on, I was always just selling weed and always had a side job. Uh, selling weed wasn't my only source of income ever, but it always helped me. 
it always was was there to you know take care of uh, of stuff for my mom's that she needed to take care of that she couldn't do you know it always it was always a backbone you know it was always a backbone it was always recreational and as i got older it became medicinal so how's that been going with legalization which seems like it, it should be a nice thing but to, to be honest, it's it's not that good. Uh, I, I'm lucky that I have loyal uh, customers, but I've went from having uh, maybe like 35 to 40 customers to now having 15, 14 customers, you know? So it's a big dramatic change, obviously. And uh, to be honest, uh, I'm not, I don't agree with all these stores that are opening, they're not part of the culture, first off. These people are people that been had stores and now they're turning them into weed stores. You're talking about the unlicensed shops like like in every other open storefront. Correct. Correct. Uh I think it's a it's a it's a big it was a big plunder for everybody in the streets that was doing this before them. You know, uh it was a dramatic change in money for everybody that is in the streets. You know, I took a big loss. Um, I, I'm glad that these stores are going down little by little because uh, these people ain't part of the culture. They don't know weed. They don't know what to look for. They don't know texture. They don't know nothing. They're there for a dollar, as we all are. But at the same time, you have to be in this culture in order to make a buck out of it. You can't. You can't step into another culture and make money out of it. Because guess what? Now you're a fucking culture vulture. Am I right, Harry? Do you agree with that? I'm a PG host. <laughs> well, you know, that's how I feel strongly about that. I really feel strongly about that. You know, there are people probably that are part of the culture and are doing it illegally. But at the same time, it's not helping the people in the culture for real. It's not. I understand the people who just want to make a dollar. Of course. And, of course. And a lot of this is like bodega That's money. That's what it's about. These That's are hardworking people. And it's like, oh, here's a market opportunity. The risk is absolutely worth it with, with the police, with the robbers, with whatever. Of course, the people putting the money up are not who's behind the store counter anyways. Um, it bothers me that the state and the city and like, you know, the authorities that are letting this happen. It's very different from people having, say, like you do, a delivery business or whatnot when you're signing some sort of lease. You know, when 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 you're buying carpentry and this and that and and people are turning a blind right. eye because nobody wants to criminalize this stuff no more, which I entirely get. <clears throat> but if the idea is to give something back to whoever was punished by that criminalization, you got to choose. Like either you're cool with these storefronts and you're not going to give much back or you're going to do this the right way. And that that to me is sort of the question. And can I ask where you're at with with the whole application process? I know you've got a CBD license already, you know, um, and right. what you'd actually like to have from the state and for yourself as a, uh, in terms of a business. So the requirements for uh, the first portal of people that were able to qualify for a license were based on uh, people that have been arrested for weed. Many times, that was one qualification. The other qualification was uh, you had to have an LLC. Actually, three qualifications. You had to have an LLC for at least two years and over, and uh, you had to have your CBD license. 
I met the qualifications for uh, the CBD license and I met the qualifications as far as the arrests. Since being I had so many arrests for, for just marijuana. The, the only reason I couldn't qualify was because uh, I didn't have my LLC for two years. And that was the only uh, kind of issue. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like what stopped me. But but the, the first photo part is done now, right? And and now, you know, I, yeah. I know the Office of Cannabis Management is saying we're giving out more licenses and faster. But the support that was that's supposed to be there, I think, in terms of uh, storefronts. Harry, 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 can I just say one thing? Please. There's one thing uh, that I, I kind of don't agree with. There's three uh, legal licensed dispensaries in Brooklyn. Am in, I right? In, New, in all of New York City. No, they're all in the village and they're right next to each other. And only one of them is a, is acquired applicant, right? It's Housing Works has one. Um, uh, one's got one and, um, and then there's a dude, you know, who has old arrests and he's got a pop-up shop because uh dormitory authority didn't have any real real estate for him. And that's it. I'll tell you this, that blows my mind. <laughs> it blows my mind that, uh, the first shops that went up were out there instead of being in the Bronx, like you mentioned before, uh, the Bronx has the most arrests for marijuana. Check out the statistics, you know. And I'll tell you this. I'm not saying that it needed to be here first. We needed to open up shops immediately here first. But shit, Harry, we don't even have one. We're the ones that should have at least five to ten before anybody. My borough has been impacted the most out of any other borough for arrest. There's a lot of people that their lives been fucked up because of these arrests. There's, 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 you know, after, let me tell you something. Back in the day, uh, if you had over a certain amount of arrests, it would turn into a felony. So now I got a felony for weed? Well, thank God not me, but what about others? You know? There's people that just got felonies just for weed, just for so many charges of weed. If they were going to open up a dispensary anywhere to make it right with the people of my borough, I think they should have did it here. And I think it would have been a great, it would have been a, a great cause. And, and, and to be honest, in order to have a, a, a real dispensary, we need to do the real things to make that happen which is the funds and the security. And is that where the, the state's in a position to play a role and to help someone like you out, potentially? It would it would be the right thing. It would be the right thing, you know? Uh, I don't want nothing ever given to me, but, you know, at least let me plant my feet somewhere I belong. Make it right. This is something I want to do. I'm not a criminal. Uh, what I mean by that, you know, I want to open up a dispensary. I don't feel that everyone should be able to get a dispensary just because they've been locked up for weed. I feel like there should be there, there should be something where you only have weed arrests. There's people that have weed arrests and other different arrests. I don't feel those people should be legible to open up one, you know. 
But a person like me who just has weed charges, you know, and, and I'm part of this culture and I love weed, you know, I was always doing it recreationally. And now I do it recreationally and medicinally. I've had a bad accident that uh, put me out for a whole year. So weed is part of my life. This is not something that is cool to me. This is not something that's, you know, hey, like everybody's doing it. No, this is part of my life. You know, and this is something I would love to continue uh, doing as part of my life. You know, I want to be more involved in uh, being able to spread the word about marijuana because I'm going to be honest, I started off as a recreational thing. But I, like I said, I got into a real bad accident where I couldn't walk for a year. And I was and taking so a lot. Of, you were biking, right? Which, which is another. Great yeah, I was. Level. Yeah, I was cycling, and uh, some kid ran the red light and took me out. Unfortunately, uh, I was out for about a year. Uh, I had to undergo a lot of therapy. I had to go undergo uh, under five surgeries. It was horrible. It was a dark time, uh, and you know, it was even darker when they were giving me those prescription Percocets. It was the worst. My body, uh, I had real bad side effects to it. You know, I couldn't, I, it was just horrible taking these pills. It was giving me all types of depression, everything. Once I was able to get off the pills, kind of, and I started smoking weed, I'm not saying the pain went away fully, but it helped so much. Helped so much. And uh, I feel it put me in a great space. I was no longer depressed. I no longer had anxiety. I felt like everything was just better. And I, I live by that. You know, I live by those words. Like, I feel like there's nothing else that would have helped me more than marijuana, you know. And uh, like I said, I, I would love to just spread the word about that, you know, because there's a lot of people that look at marijuana as a real bad thing. And it's actually not. I would I would love to spread the word on how, how how much good comes out of marijuana. But um yeah, man, this is this is something I would love to do. I, I would love to uh open up something in my community. Uh I would love to get the, the community involved. I would love to uh try to give out jobs if possible. And I would like to do this in a secure uh right. Fashion. I don't want to just do something that's illegal. I want to do something that I can wake up as if it's regular work, but I love it. So it's not work. You know, that would be a goal of mine. Um, like I said, I live in the Parchester section of the Bronx. And uh, during the pandemic, a lot of stores down here closed down and weren't able to stay up. And, you know, there's a lot of stores that are not open up and are just closed down, ready for rent. And I'm ready to take take life by the horns and, and try to, you know, open one, hopefully, one of these days. Jason, thank you very much for uh, taking the time and taking us through this. Uh, so you are, I believe, getting ready now that that first round is done, the LSC requirement is not there, to apply, to go legal if you can, pay taxes even. Of course, of course. Of any course. last words you, you want to leave listeners with and maybe anyone from uh, OCM or other government agencies who might be tuned into the podcast? Well, I just want to say this. Uh, 
I was, uh, like I said uh, before, um, I was locked up for five days and I was let out. Everything, you know, was back to normal. So I thought, uh, like I said, this happened in 2007. I was let out five days later. I had to go to court for a year. Ended up being a misdemeanor. Boom. It's out my brain. It's good riddance. Well, I thought. Uh, there was a time, uh, maybe about four years ago, uh, there was a documentary that came out. It was called uh, The Central Park Five, I think. It was about the uh, kids who uh, were wrongfully accused of, uh, I think, raping somebody or beating somebody up or killing somebody, I think it was. I'm not, I'm not, I don't remember too well. But what I do remember was uh, them being locked up for something they didn't do. And uh, watching the first episode of that season brought me great depression, brought me great anxiety again. I, I got all those feelings that I had while it was, I was in that boat. And that very minute, I started watching this documentary. And... For days after that, I just couldn't sleep. It was bothering me. I started, I started crying for no reason. I felt like it was just, it was too much for me. Uh, I ended up going to a doctor, not a doctor, psychiatrist, to just check it out because it was just weird. I was just having these weird episodes after watching that. And uh, I was, it, I came to terms that it was wrong what they did. As a kid, I just I was just happy to be home, but it really hurt me. It hurt it hurt me to the point that it did that. And uh there should never be anybody that has to go through that ever again. And uh I'm glad that uh I'm a I'm a testament of that I'm able to talk about it. it wasn't the best times, but it was something that kind of needed to happen for things to be the way they are now. But my last words about anything would have to be, you know, if the state wants to make anything right, start with me. Help me out. I don't want a handout, but I do want help. And I do need funds to make my dream come true. You know, I paid my dues and now I'm ready to take hold of my life and live my goals. And live my life, make my mom proud. My mom's 77 years old. Uh, before she leaves, I want to make sure that she knows her son's good. Uh, that's about it, Harry. Jason, thank you again for uh, for taking the time. And Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. And uh, best, best of luck to you with all this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. Uh, your, your words to God's ears, man. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at Popula.com. Our host this episode was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Thank you to our guest, Jason Morales. 
And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.